Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. For over a century, the NAACP has fought for civil rights for all Americans. Their work helped overturn Jim Crow laws in the South, and it was the catalyst for the desegregation of public schools. It's also been instrumental in securing voting rights. But now, after the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, what's the role of the NAACP in our modern society? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, a conversation with Connecticut's NAACP president. We'll also hear how some private student loan companies are targeting people of color. I'm joined now by Scott X. Esdale. Scott has dedicated his life to activism and civil rights right here in Connecticut. In 2004, he was elected president of the Connecticut State Conference of the NAACP. Under his leadership, the organization has fought for criminal justice reform and equitable access to health care. He was commended for that work earlier this year when he was named the Activist of the Year at the 2022 NAACP Image Awards. Scott, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me on your show. So let's talk about the movements that you have been part of. And you were named Activist of the Year. So let's talk about your approach to activism. You've been a part of that work for nearly 40 years. It's a part of who you are and what you do. But I'm curious what got you into activism and what made you see that as the path you wanted to take? I've been around it all my life. I was kind of like born into it. Generations before me have been community activists and they come out of the UNIA movement. My grandmother and grandfather were part of the Marcus Garvey movement. And um, they always made sure that we were out in the community, participating, being involved, going to rallies, going to different protests and oh, I was always around it. So uh, my whole family uh, comes up out of it. Constance Baker Motley was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's personal attorney. Uh, she became the uh, Man- Manhattan Borough president uh, and also became the first black federal judge. So, I mean, it's always been around me. That's pretty much how I got into it. You are a native of New Haven, Connecticut. Born and raised out of New Haven. My mother was born in Brooklyn, uh, raised in Bridgeport. So during the week, I would be in New Haven. And on the weekends, I would be in Bridgeport and in New York. So that's the, the balance that I've always had, you know, New York and Connecticut. Having that balance between New York and Connecticut means that you had the opportunity to be really at the the feet of people who were inspired by Marcus Garvey, who came out of that tradition of community uplift and empowerment, that you don't wait for others to take care of your community. You take care of the community yourself. And you've mentioned before the, the influence of your grandmother in letting you know it wasn't an option that you would contribute to community, that you had to because it was a part of your calling. What was your grandmother's influence on exposing you to activism at an early age? She was, my grandmother was a very, very tough woman, uh, very, very stern, very, very active. And she came from the West Indian culture. 
no matter, we had no choice in reference to going out and passing out food to individuals that needed food. She owned a lot of property in the city of, of New Haven. Uh, she also owned a, a bar called the Esdell's Lounge. So I was always around entertainment, always around activism, always around business development, always around uh, uh, making sure that we took care of the people that didn't have as much as we had. So she, she pretty much set the blueprint for pretty much all of the, her grandchildren and, and her children. We're going to talk about the ways that you have combined activism and entertainment in a moment. But first, I want to think about this major accomplishment that you just earned, and that is being named Activist of the Year at the NAACP Image Awards. What was that experience like to have your work recognized on a national scale? What was that like for you? It was a great experience. I had a lot of fun. I was glad that my family got an opportunity to come out and hang out with me. Uh, I love the... Uh, the camaraderie of, of being around activists from all over the country. And it was, a real, as I stated, it was a great experience. As you had stated earlier, I've been in the game for like 35 years. Uh, so around 87, I officially got, well, I should say even around 84 when Jesse Jackson ran for, for president. That's when I really started going around the community, passing out flyers and trying to register people to vote and all that kind of stuff. So around 84 is when I, when I started. Uh, and then I really got active around the second time that he ran when Roger Van and I kind of hooked up together and started mobilizing and re- doing voter registration around New Haven, Connecticut. Let's talk about your work with the NAACP. It's an organization founded in 1909, but for some people, they may say it is an organization for a particular demographic, for more middle class working professional type people, and it may not be connected to the issues. But you have really made the NAACP a vehicle to address a lot of the things that everyday people are confronted with. What made you decide, this is the way that I want to structure my activism via the NAACP, given those kinds of questions? Well, the hip hop culture uh, was really coming on the scene very strong in the 80s and in the 90s. And I was in the middle of of that. Uh, I was managing rap groups uh, like K Solo, working with guys like Redman, EPMD, who else was out there? Grand Poobah and Mary J. Blige and Father MC and all those guys. So I was part of that, that culture. And I wanted to figure out a way of how I could use my talents and my skills from the entertainment industry and cross it over into community activism and also political activism. Roger, at that particular time, meaning Roger Van, peace out to Roger Van, he's actually struggling with cancer right now. He was uh, the young Barack Obama before Obama came on the scene. He went to Brown University, he was from the same neighborhood, and uh, he came back and, you know, he was dressed different. He wasn't dressed with the Thames on and the, and the hoodies and all that kind of stuff, but he was the Barack Obama before Barack Obama and there was another guy named Otis Moss III, who now is the, the pastor of the huge church where Barack Obama and Michelle Obama went to church in Chicago. So he was at Yale Divinity School at that time. So a lot of us were out uh, mobilizing. It was a huge uh, movement around political activism. A lot of it had to do with Jesse Jackson. Uh, and at that time, also Minister Farrakhan was doing his thing, similar to how Dr. King and Malcolm X were doing their thing during the 60s. And there was a huge movement around the hip hop culture. A lot of uh, conscious rap was going on around that time, Public Enemy and, and several other groups out there, Brand Nubians. 
And uh, I was right, right in the middle of it. And when my father had a stroke, I came back to New Haven. I left Harlem and came back to New Haven and hooked up with Roger. And Roger wanted to be the NAACP president at that particular time. And it was an older established group that uh, wasn't here in this new young movement. And it was a huge culture clash. And to make a long story short, we ran Roger for president. And I think we won like by a landslide. And I had a lot to do with running his campaign. And uh, that was in 1994. In 2000, I became the branch president. And I started running a lot of people for office. I got really, really involved. I started hanging out with political activists and political scientists at Yale University that really taught me the skills of running elections. And then I started really getting active. And then I got tired of running other people. And I said, let me run myself. Roger moved on to be state president and then moved on to be the national membership director for the NAACP. And then eventually he even moved up to the national COO of the NAACP. And as you know, Otis moved on and Michael Jefferson and many others were all young activists that would now become an attorneys and, and uh, becoming uh, on boards of uh, police commissions. And it was amazing how a lot of things were changing. And uh, I started running myself and I moved up to branch president became one of the youngest branch presidents in the nation. Uh, we made a name for ourselves when we started bringing the, the hip hop culture in. We brought First Fridays to the scene. We brought a lot of concerts to, uh, freedom, to our Freedom Fund dinner. Uh, we had Gerald Levert come perform. Uh, and we got a lot of young people active in the, in the local branch. And it was something that people have not seen across the nation. And a lot of people were, were uh, mimicking what we were doing here in New Haven across the nation. So we started making us a name for ourselves across the country. We started rapping vans like the record labels were doing. We were doing voter registration. We were out at the restaurants, out at the, the clubs. Uh, we were everywhere. Our membership grew from like 600 to like 1500 members. And then, you know, I'm making a long story short because I know we don't have a whole lot of time. Then I moved on to be the state president. And then I started transcending what we were doing in New Haven and in other cities across the state. We started Harmony Classic, uh, where we had all the fraternities and the sororities and the Divine Nine get involved. We did the great debate. You were involved with the first one, where over four or 5,000 people came out in attendance, sold out. Uh, that happened exactly right after the movie dropped, The Great Debaters with Denzel Washington. So we were using a lot of stuff that was happening in entertainment and crossing it over to, to the movement. And uh, we had a great balance and people were recognizing it once across the country. How was the small state, Connecticut, the third small state in the union, bringing these big crowds of 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 people coming out to these events? And, you know, we just started doing some really innovative things around, you know, legislation, passing legislation up in Hartford around education, around healthcare. Any major issue around criminal justice, we were right in front of it. Uh, we were passing a lot of bills and we got a lot of young students and brilliant young people involved and active. And uh, we were starting to shock the world. And once again, I got elected to the national board, eventually became the national criminal justice chair. We brought the million jobs campaign for the formerly incarcerated. So we've been doing some really progressive stuff and, uh, and uh, we've been getting recognized. So people have been inviting us all around the country to to show what we've been doing locally in Connecticut and think the people appreciate it and they eventually gave me an award. That was Connecticut NAACP President Scott X. Esdale. When we come back, more from our conversation and we'll hear how Scott's helping formerly incarcerated people find work 
and connecting with young people, and later a look at student loan debt in our country. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Still ahead this hour, we'll hear from a Connecticut group that's advocating for the end of student loans. But first, let's return to our conversation with Scott X. Esdale, president of the Connecticut NAACP. Under his leadership, the NAACP has fought for key social justice reform, but he says the group still faces opposition. I asked Scott to talk about the biggest challenge he's faced as president of the Connecticut Conference. The biggest challenge that we've had is around minority teacher recruitment. I haven't been able to crack that egg, and we haven't been able to increase minority teacher recruitment in Connecticut. There's been a lot of resistance around this, and it's, it's really sad, but it's the truth. And that's one of the, 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 the ones that really, uh, you know, I'm, I shouldn't say I'm embarrassed about it because really the individuals that are opposing it should really be embarrassed, but I haven't been able to be successful. I mean, we have so many victories, but one of the ones that I have not been able to really move the needle around is minority teacher recruitment. 85% of the inner cities like Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, uh, Waterbury are Black and, and Hispanic. So the student population is around 85%. But the teacher and faculty that teach the actual children in reference to Black and Latinos are around 8%. And we've been really pushing. We've had walkouts We've done all, all kinds of different protests and marches around. The students have done a lot around this particular area, but we haven't been able really to move the needle. Once again, I think that um, we're going to have to really take it to the streets, galvanize young people to understand the issue. And if we're not able to move the needle there, then we're going to have to take it to court on the judicial side. One of the things that makes addressing these issues that you mentioned so difficult is that Connecticut is a small state, but it is incredibly segregated along racial lines and across class lines so that people start asking, why should I care about that issue? As long as I'm okay, other people have to figure it out. How does the the continuing segregation in Connecticut, even today, how does that affect the work that you're doing on policies like schools, like housing, like prison gerrymandering? How does that play out for you? I think that the, the, the black middle class really doesn't. Well, I think they understand, but they, they, they're really comfortable and they have not been able to connect in reference to helping uh, the way that I think that they can around moving policy and legislation across the state. But I think it's imperative that uh, we're able to connect with the black church and black and connect with the black uh, middle class. Because back in the day, they talked about the 10 percent and the 10 percent would get educated and come back, you know, from W. Du Bois uh, philosophy would come back and uh, make the difference and make the change. I've been trying to figure out how to how to how to do that. I think that that's a that's a that's a, a honest and constructive critique for the black community that we have to figure out how to get more aggressive. And when I say the word militant, I'm not saying about grabbing guns or anything like that, but I'm saying that we need to get more militant in reference to making sure that we make meaningful change in our communities. I think that the leadership of our communities have gotten very comfortable. And I think that it's imperative that we're able to really get aggressive around policy 
and, and making change, a real meaningful change. When you look at the dollars and the resources for the major companies and corporations uh, that many of these individuals sit in leadership positions, if you look at uh, the major economic institutions where met many of our representatives are around diversity and inclusion, they're, they're, they're represented there. But if we, act, if we really look at the meaningful and measurable change, I don't see it. We had a, a report on the hospitals that came out in 2013, who are the major employers. When we looked at the, the diversity and inclusion around the hospitals, when you look at the, the boards, pretty much is like 90 to 90% all white. The senior management, the C-class, the C-suites is pretty much 100% white or 90% white. When you look at the mid-level management positions and you look at the, the way that they do business and uh, out of the... Uh, $5 billion that was spent annually, uh, we found out that only $150,000 was spent with Black-owned businesses. Uh, so this is, this is criminal. And we can't say that we're advancing and we're not able to have meaningful support for Black-owned businesses. And we need an outcry from the middle class and an outcry from our most talented and most educated and not just be comfortable about the situation that we're in. We need to come back and make a real uh, concrete change in the communities that we say we represent. And I, I want to lead into this because the, the question is always, we know what the problems are. We know what the challenges are. The next question is, what do we do? And so one of the ways that you have have used platforms to get these things out and also to connect with younger people who may not be in these boardrooms, but understand what it means for their everyday lives is through social media. What do you think about that? You know, have you been able to use social media as a way to get these messages out to connect with young people? I'm working on my TikTok game. I got to get my TikTok dance game up. Hopefully you can teach me a few moves. On, I could get on there and be more influential. With I, the I don't think you want me to teach you how to TikTok for justice, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we have to embrace young people. We have to bring them in. The reason why we came into leadership with the NAACP, because they didn't embrace us. And uh, I want to make sure that while I'm at the table, that I'm embracing and giving young people a meaningful seat at the table. I know that social media is very, has a lot of influence with them. And that's how they communicate. And uh, I've been working on it. I really rely on young people to help me in that particular space. I'm constantly learning. Uh, but I think that that's the wave of the future. And that if we do not embrace it and moving it and move uh, with that, that new platform of communication, I think that we'll end up being dinosaurs. So uh, we have to embrace it. We have to learn it. We have to get educated. I know it's out of our comfort zone. We're used to having the big cell phones that look like suitcases and all that kind of stuff. But I got to stay on top of technology. We all have to stay up on top of te technology and we have to continue to communicate and not, you know, be dinosaurs, be the, the new George Jetsons. Well, let's talk about how you are connecting to people who often get overlooked and often are not a part of the conversations that need to be happening, but also part of the solutions. And last year, you helped launch or led the One Million Job Campaign to create employment options and opportunities for formerly incarcerated people across the state. What is the motivation behind the One Million Jobs Campaign? And why do you think that's so important right now? You know, I've been very close, once again, you know, in the hip hop community, I've been very close to 
individuals that have been impacted by the crack era. Uh, I was one of the huge advocates for the Stop the Violence movement, the Million Man March. And I watched a lot of my friends die and I watched a lot of uh, individuals go to jail for a long time. And I also watched the opiate crisis and how individuals from our community that had drug problems, they went to jail for a long time and how they're sending all the individuals from the white community to rehab. I've seen the criminal justice system make the adjustments for their communities. Uh, I also uh, watched very closely around this whole new reentry movement. Uh, I've seen people capitalizing off of Black people's suffering. And uh, I would sit down and have these conversations with young people, and they would tell me that there was a lot of training, 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 and no job with these reentry uh, programs, and that a lot of these people were hustling. And I would hear young people talk about, I, you know, I pulled up my pants, I, I cut my braids off, I covered my tattoos, I did all of this stuff, still no job. They keep, you know, I did all my time. Uh, I'm off of probation. They still won't give me a job. So pretty much a felony is like a kiss of death. And I don't think our leaders are really paying attention to how much of an impact criminal justice has hurt us. They're seeing the violence in the community, but they're really not doing the research to dig down on what's really going on. So I really did the research, checked it out and found out that, you know, that a lot of this stuff was true and it was accurate. So I said, you know, how can I help with this problem? The NAACP has some of the most powerful relationships with corporate America. And a lot of them make write a $20,000 check, $25,000 check, but they really are not partners on the real problems that we have in the community. And I, was, I said at the national board that we cannot continue to have these partners and they're not helping us with the problems that we have in our community. So if you're a real partner, you're going to have to set aside some jobs for people that have been formerly incarcerated so we could decrease this violence. You said that you want to decrease the violence. We found out that a lot of it was, excuse my language, a lot of BS. And uh, we, we've been calling them on it. So we're saying, listen, if you really a partner with us, you got to set some jobs aside. So did some more research to find out who was hiring the best around formerly incarcerated individuals. Out of this, the best that I found was John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And they've set aside 10% of their jobs. They have 50,000 people in their network, employees within their network, and 10% are formerly incarcerated. So I went down there. I said, I don't think this is true. I went down there, looked up under the hood, kicked the tires. And to be perfectly honest, they were really, you know, hiring our people. And I got an opportunity to talk to them. I talked to the CEO. I talked to the head of security. I talked to the head of human resources. And they, they pretty much gave me a tour. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I was like, I need to bring this back to Connecticut. Not only that, I have a relationship with all 27 hospitals. So this is one hospital I could do it with all 27 hospitals because I had a partnership with CHA. So I came back, I challenged them. At that time, Kevin Myatt was the head of human resources and he was on the CHA board. And uh, he, he did his research and he was like, Scott, come on, let's do it. So we started at Yale New Haven Hospital. The, the program is up and running. We did the fundraising around it and we've been up and running for a year now. And every place around the country is stri striving to take the program and bring it into their states. So far, it's going really good. That's one another reason why we got the award. Another thing that I'm thinking of what's happening in the country right now and the work that you've done, Scott, to empower other people, there are a lot of people celebrating right now that Katanji Brown Jackson will be the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. And that's laudable and it's important. But frankly, it shouldn't have taken that long. 
And one of the things that you have done, even before people started thinking about the Supreme Court, was to demand a more diverse judicial system in the state of Connecticut. You were one of the early voices demanding that Connecticut have justices who look like the population that they are presiding over. Why was it so important for you to address that issue early in talking about comprehensive criminal justice reform? Well, when you point your finger at all these different situations across the country and you have that stage, the question would then come to, like, what are you doing in your state? So when you put your finger out, you have three fingers pointing back at you. So I saw at that particular time that there were very low count of Black judges. At that time, Dawn Westbrook was the head of our, she's now a judge now, but at that particular time, she was our head legal counsel for the NAACP. At that time, uh, I think Jody Rell was the, the governor, and I challenged her and her administration and uh, I think the second year, not the first year, we didn't get anything the first year, but the second year, we got 13 judges on the bench. Now, when you see how the movement began and where we're at now, we have a state, the, the chief justice for the state of Connecticut is Richard Robinson. This is the first time an African-American has been the chief justice for the state of Connecticut. And he is a former president of the Stanford NAACP. So this is the advancement of colored people. The NAACP is uh, not only doing it nationwide, but we've been doing it in Connecticut for a while. So once again, you know, we've been leaders in the nation and people have been watching our work for a while. And, um, you know, now we have a U.S. Supreme Court justice. She's not the chief, but hopefully we'll, we'll get her up there eventually. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation about connecting entertainment and activism and opportunity. Scott, you were the first Black chairman of the Connecticut Boxing Commission, which was unheard of at the time. And now you are executive producer to a TV show called That's Life. What was the motivation behind creating that show? And how do you see it as a way to bring together these things that you've talked about, about entertainment, activism, and opportunities, particularly for young people? Well, I found that it's, for me at least, it's an easy way for me to communicate with a lot of people and get the message out to a lot of people. So I've found that, that happy medium or that balance on how to put social justice and entertainment together. And make sure that entertainers are aware of what's going on in the communities that they come from. And I've always challenged them not to forget where they came from. But I've always kind of like, always wanted a stage for young people to have a voice uh, because I remember being in that particular position and nobody really giving us a voice. We had to do it on our own. So with the That Live TV show, I want, I'm not on the show. You know, I'm not the host of the show. I'm just the producer of the show, but I just mobilize and galvanize and network with young people and give them an opportunity to get on stage and show their talents. But at the same time, I make them balance, balance the, the message with social justice. So I'm just trying to develop more young people to get in the same space that I've created myself. So I wanna create you know, in, individuals that will do very well in the entertainment industry, and at the same time have a social justice conscience. Scott X. Esdell is president of the Connecticut State Conference of the NAACP. He's a National Criminal Justice Chair and the 2022 NAACP Image Awards Activist of the Year. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doc. Appreciate you. After the break, a look at the student debt crisis in our country and how one activist group says we can fight for change. This is Disrupted. 
Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we've been talking with Connecticut NAACP President Scott X. Esdale. And now we turn to another issue, and it's gaining a lot of attention. The Federal Reserve estimates that about 45 million Americans are saddled with student loan debt, and nearly all of that money is given out by the federal government. A growing number of people across the political spectrum are calling for the cancellation of student debt. Both the Trump and Biden administrations paused the collection of federal student loan payments during the pandemic. And earlier this month, the White House announced that it's extending that pause through the end of August. But many question the benefits of canceling student loan debt outright. Some economists say that student debt forgiveness would hurt lower income communities the most. And advocates, however, see it as a way to create generational wealth for lower income families. Our next guests say canceling student loan debt is worth it. Ann Watkins is the founder of the student loan fund Borrowers Collective. Chris Estrada Perez is their executive director. Ann and Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. And you're the founder of this organization. Talk to us about what led you to create it and what you wanted to accomplish. I have been an organizer, a community organizer since the late 90s. And I know deeply the power of folks coming together to make big change. In 2002, I uh, had the privilege of knowing and working with a colleague whose family came from generational wealth. I had extraordinary student loan debt and her family started something that they were calling Jubilee gifts. So this is the biblical principle of debt relief as a way of not just sharing gifts, but allowing people to live freely. And they paid down half of my student debt. I didn't get that because I was particularly brilliant or accomplished or anything. It was just luck. Then I married someone I had known for a long time, and he also came from a family of generational wealth, and they paid down the rest of my student debt. Again, not that I did anything special. I just got it, right? And so for years, I've thought that other people deserve that grace. (laughs) And coupled with my organizing background and a growing awareness of the systems. In 2019, it, you know, the conversation around student debt was escalating, but I decided to go ahead and bring some folks together to talk about it. I started doing one-to-ones, which is something you do as an organizer. You identify people's self-interest, you figure out what the pressing needs are, and then you identify public policy that you can change it. So October 12th of 2019, a group of us, I think there were seven or eight of us who got together in the New Haven Free Public Library to talk about what life would look like if we didn't have student debt. And that was thrilling. And at that time, that was before the pandemic started, we were talking about what would we need to do to influence the 2020 election and to bring the issues of student debt cancellation to the forefront in that in that election. 
There are a number of things in what you just said in terms of your own personal experience, having the opportunity to create pathways and opportunities for other people. And you also talked about the shame and the stigma that is associated with that. And Chris, I think about what happened when Stacey Abrams was running for governor and the gotcha card that they tried to play was she is the student loan debt. And she wrote this op-ed to say, yes, I do, but so do other people. And that idea of focusing on borrowers and their voice and their experience, that's a different kind of take. Why for this organization is it so important to center the voices of borrowers and their families and people connected to them? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. I think that's such an important question. We often talk about shame and the shame that we carry as individuals and as community members because of this because of this college debt that we've accrued. But the reality of it is, is that we've spent X number of years telling students that they have to go to college to be able to make means they have to they have to be able to go to college. And then we turned the, the sort of the narrative around and started blaming students and borrowers and their families for doing exactly what we asked them to do, which is to go to college. And I think what's important about turning the lens and talking to the borrower and the student borrower is in their families is to recognize that we are all part of the system and alone will suffer, right? Alone, we are at the mercy of these institutions, but collectively we recognize that this is not an individual issue. It is actually an institutional problem, an institutionally created problem that doesn't actually need to exist. And we destigmatize that because it is not my debt. It is not my shame. It is not our shame. Education should be accessible, right, for people. It should be available for folks. So when we talk about school debt, but take don't take into account wage stagnation, the inequities that already exist in these spaces, uh, and we decide to shame students instead. It's a it, it reminds us to solidify into our mission that collectively we fight for collective liberation because together we are powerful. And I I hear so many threads in what Chris just mentioned about this is an institutional problem. And often institutional problems demand institutional solutions, but they are multi-pronged in their approach in terms of what level they're addressed and by whom. And we're seeing this now at the federal level so that, you know, President Biden has announced that he will extend the pause in terms of federal loans. But your organization is talking not just about federal loans, but also private loan relief. What do you see as the difference in the impact of addressing both federal loans and private borrowers in this space? You know, borrowers are impacted by debts of all sorts. You know, we've seen families need to take out private loans. They might exhaust their federal federal loan options. And so then they turn to private loans. And schools promote these loans. They promote these loans as an option. But the thing with the private loans is, During the pause, you don't get the pause. (laughs) The interest rates don't stop. They're hard to discharge in bankruptcy. So we think we wanna cancel all student debt. Canceling private loans is gonna be a much more complicated challenge to address. Federal student debt can be canceled with the stroke of a pen. President Biden could sign his signature on an executive order today and cancel all federal loans. Chris, I want to dig into this a little more because canceling student loan debt has been a controversial idea for years, even though it's becoming more of a political 
concern. There's a recent study from Morning Consult that says less than 20% of Americans support unconditional loan forgiveness. And one of the challenges there is determining who actually benefits. So I think about a state like Connecticut, where there is tremendous income gaps across the state. And the concern then is that the people who would benefit the most would be those who are already more educated and better connected. How do you respond to those types of critiques that this plan sounds good in theory, but might not hold up in practice? That is such a good question because we often hear that talking point and it's the one that gets my blood boiling. You know, we often we often talk about that, like it'll benefit the most the wealthiest, the wealth, the wealthiest of wealth. People that are wealthy don't have debt. People who have student debt took out the student debt because they didn't have the means to pay for it, period. Right. And I think uh, so, you know, often we hear about what is a litmus test? What is a way? What are the ways in which we can decipher what number? What is the right cap? If we believe education is an essential part of uh, our society and our world, then we need to invest in those things. And people who have the means to pay for those, they already do. At the end of the day, the barometer for whether you should have debt cancellation should be at the fact that you have to borrow it to begin with, because we shouldn't have this debt. And let's go back to you because you started this organization. Your focus has been on borrowers. What do you say to institutions of higher education, vocational education and training who are a part of this process as well? What would you say are one or two priorities or things they could do today to address the concerns that you have and that your organization has been working on? There's a really practical thing that all institutions of higher ed can do today. And we've seen some take advantage of this. Right now, there's something called um, the HERF program, the Higher Education Relief Funds. And that's something that came out through the ARP um, funding. And colleges and universities, as part of that funding, have a certain amount that is allocated for student relief and student aid. One thing that colleges and universities could do is use those dollars to cancel institutional debt. These are debts that are you know, between $500 and $5,000. And colleges and universities have chosen to use as a, a way to extract that money back, as a way to get that money paid, they've chosen to withhold transcripts. So there's a bill before the Connecticut legislature right now to cancel what we call transcript ransom. We want people to have access to their transcripts. We want people to be able to use those transcripts to get jobs. We want them to have access for, to the diplomas that they've earned because they've completed the coursework, but they're being held hostage by these very small pieces of debt. Colleges and universities should use those HERF dollars today to cancel institutional debt for their students. And we need a systemic approach to prohibit that practice. Ann Watkins is founder of the Student Loan Fund Borrowers Collective, and Chris Estrada Perez is executive director of that collective. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. And a very special thanks this week to Diane Orson and Meg Fitzgerald. Our interns are Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. And if you want to hear more Disrupted, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. 
I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.